couple of weeks ago now, I was actually teaching those uh, very same kids that just left the auditorium here, trying to illustrate the gift that was given to us. Talking about the Christmas story, you know, what we think of as Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. And I was asking the kids to perhaps give me some examples of some of the gifts that they are looking forward to this Christmas season. And, you know, we got the traditional gifts that you might expect, mostly toys and stuff. And I was kind of trying to drive the point home that much like you want presents for Christmas, God gave us the gift of his son. And I realize in hindsight that making that transition from talking about toys and the expectation of presents under the tree to spiritual things is probably a pretty significant jump for a little kid. Because when I said that God gave us his son Jesus, one of the little kids piped up and said, that's it? And granted, that's on me for maybe setting him up for failure there. But I couldn't help but wonder in hindsight if us adults sometimes possess that mindset regarding the gift of Jesus Christ. I'm sure a lot of us would be quick in that scenario to pipe up and tell the four to six year old, no, 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 God gave us the greatest gift in Christ. There's no better gift than this. But in our heart of hearts, I wonder if perhaps we've thought, is Jesus really enough? Particularly as we try to navigate the difficulties, the uncertainties of life. Maybe I could just list off a couple of them for you. I know that with inflation and the increase in prices, perhaps you are thinking to yourself, man, things are tight financially right now. Perhaps you're looking at what you have and you're just anticipating not being able to buy anything other than Market Basket brand food, not being able to leave New England for a vacation, and maybe you're just thinking, man, I could really use an increase in my income. Perhaps you've just received a health diagnosis that has impacted your normal Perhaps there's just strife in the home. Maybe your marriage feels strained. Your kids are walking away from the Lord. Maybe you're lonely, discouraged. Maybe projects at work or around your house are piling up. You feel stressed. You feel overwhelmed by the burdens of life. And you think, I just need a break. I need some rest. This is too much for me. And you've heard well-meaning people say to you that Jesus is enough. And you want to believe that. You, You really do. You want to know experientially what it means that Jesus is enough. But you can't help but think, that what you really need right now is an increase in your income, healing, a friend, a spouse, a vacation. And if you let these thoughts fester in your mind, 
Maybe you begin not to just think, but believe that the answer for the turmoil that exists in your heart and in your life can be found somewhere other than Christ. And I want to set about to answer the question this morning, is that true? Or is Jesus enough? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6 as we seek to answer that question. Hebrews chapter 6. Just to bring you up to speed a little bit for what's going on in this chapter here, the author is in the midst of encouraging these people to persevere in their faith, to stay strong, to keep with it. And this is perhaps necessary because chapter 10 tells us about some of the real hardships that these people have gone through. I just listed some of the hardships that we maybe have gone through. In some ways, they pale in comparison to what the Hebrews have gone through. The author says to them that they have experienced publicly reproach and affliction. Perhaps these people have been mocked, ridiculed, perhaps beaten. Publicly, the author says some of them have been imprisoned. Others have had their property plundered. It seems as if the law at this time in history is not looking out or protecting believers. People are able to, at their own discretion, plunder, destroy, steal from these people. This does not sound like a fun or an easy time to be a Christian. Uh, I imagine questions are being asked. Is this worth it? This is what being a Christian got me. It's apparent from this chapter and others, the risk of people leaving the faith is very real at this time in biblical history. People have walked away. So the author here in chapter 6 is going to encourage those who remain with one thing. And it's not the promise of being released from prison. It's not the promise of their property being protected. It's not the promise of the Christian life just being easy and nice and cheerful again. Those things sound really good to us. We would like that, right? The author says, no. I'm going to encourage you with a hope that has been promised to you by God. Now, when we talk about the word hope, it's one of those things that is kind of, I I don't know, let let me give you an example of how we might use it in a sentence. We might say, I hope that I get a job, or I hope that it doesn't snow tomorrow. Our usage of the word hope uh, implies that we are optimistic that something might happen, but there's no real guarantee that it will. It's just a positive thought that we possess This is not the case for the word hope in the book of Hebrews. The author is going to take great pains to say here that the hope that he is introducing to us is sure, it is guaranteed, it's a promise that God has made to us. You can take it to the bank 
we might say. Look at verse 11, where we're first introduced to it. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, we read, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In essence, what the author is saying here is that you guys have done a really good job up to this point of following Christ. You have been faithful thus far. Keep it up. Keep up the good work. For those of you who do endure till the end, there is a promise that awaits you. As I was thinking about this uh, promise and a hope, that is at the end of that promise, I couldn't help but think about uh, this social experiment that I think is called like the marshmallow test. Anyone ever heard of that before? Yeah, you, uh, let me encourage you to look this up online. It is quite funny. Uh, the marshmallow test uh, involves someone taking, you know, one of those nice big marshmallows and setting it down in front of a kid and telling them, and keep in mind, this is like three-year-olds to six-year-olds, and telling them, listen, I'm going to leave the room and if this marshmallow is still here when I get back, I'll give you another. How well do you think the kids do when the adult leaves the room at leaving that marshmallow alone? <laughs> Not too well. The results are hilarious. Usually there's like a hidden camera somewhere in front of them, and you see the kid after the adult leaves, and they're just looking at it. And it's just them and a marshmallow. And sometimes they'll pick it up, and like one of the kids like licked it and put it back down on the plate. <laughs> and you can just see the temptation. The tension is all over their face. They know that if they are just able to persevere, they'll get two marshmallows. But the one in front of them is just too much, and so they'll pick it up and take a little nibble and put it back down. And then, you know, some of the kids just stick the whole thing in their mouth, and the adult comes back in the room, and they don't get a second marshmallow. But the point of that whole study is, can you, knowing what is coming, endure now? Similarly, this is what the author is encouraging the people with in this text. Knowing that there is something that has been promised to you by God that is coming, can you be patient and faithful? Now you say, is there anyone in scripture that has ever had to do this before? The author says, yes. Let me encourage you with the life of someone who has had to do this. Verse 13, he introduces us to him. Hebrews 6 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Do you guys remember Abraham's story? When he was like 75 years old, God made a promise to him. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. It comes in three parts. God tells him, there's going to be a great nation that comes from you. I'm going to give you a land to possess. And from you, Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. But there's a problem. Abraham doesn't even have a son, let alone a nation. And he has to wait 25 years for the fulfillment of that promise. And what is to us just a page or two in Genesis is a quarter of a century for Abraham waiting with each passing day. Now he's 85, now he's 95. The likelihood of him having a son is slim from a human perspective, right? And yet God delivers on that promise and Isaac is born. 
But the problems don't end then, huh? God, Abraham still has to exercise faith in God. Even after Isaac is born, Abraham's well into his hundreds now. And like our scripture reading detailed for us today, God expects Abraham to now offer this son as a sacrifice. It's a test. Scripture is clear to tell us that. God wanted to see what Abraham would do when presented with a test. Hebrews 11 is going to tell us that Abraham actually expected God to raise Isaac from the dead. And at the end of this whole ordeal, when that ram is found in the thicket and it's a substitute for Isaac, God reiterates the promises that he had made to Abraham 25 years prior at least. And he says to Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to give you that land. And how easy do you think it was for Abraham, having seen God provide thus far through his life, to say, you know what, God? Some of these promises still aren't realized. But I believe you. I've seen you work in my past. I know who you've revealed yourself to be. I trust that even though there's still a couple promises unfulfilled, you'll answer them. That's who God is. And the text here in Hebrews is careful to say, in verse 13, that when God reiterated this promise, he swore by himself. Verse 16 elaborates on what that means. We read, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Apparently, it was customary during these times when making a promise to show the seriousness with which you uh, were making this promise, you would swear by something greater than yourself. Uh, Jesus actually tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that it was pretty customary for people to swear by, let me read it, uh, heaven or earth, uh, even Jerusalem. Maybe not an exact parallel, but maybe think of how we put things up as collateral, things that have great value to us to ensure that we do not default on a loan. People back then would say, to show you how serious I am about this promise, I'll swear by something like Jerusalem or heaven or earth, something greater than me. And this begs the question, if God is making a promise, what greater thing can he swear by than himself? There's nothing greater than God. And when God reiterates this promise, he swears by himself. And now the author is going to make that connection between God's initial promise to Abraham and the promise that is being talked about here to believers. Look at verse 17. We read, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. Now, there is a question here in verse 17 as to whether or not this promise that is being talked about is a continuation of the promise God made to Abraham or a new promise that is being introduced entirely. I'm going to argue that it doesn't really matter. The fulfillment of them is both the same the larger point that the author is trying to make here is that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And he's going to give us a couple assurances to know that God keeps his word. The first thing he does is he lists off these two unchangeable truths. 
Again, these are mildly disputed as to what they are. A lot of people think that these two unchangeable things are a reference to God making both a promise and an oath. In essence, God is giving his word twice that he would bring this promise to pass. It is doubly secure. But even that is just to illustrate the clearest point in verse 18, where we read that it is impossible for God to lie. Now, normally, we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about what it is impossible for God to do, right? In fact, I would even say that questions or discussions in which the primary topic is speculating about things that it might be impossible for God to do is actually pretty foolish and not something that we should engage in as Christians. But here, the author of Hebrews is saying there is one thing that is impossible for God. He cannot lie. All of this illustrating the point, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And this is supposed to serve as an encouragement to this church. And maybe as we've been working through the text, you've been more or less tracking with me, but we've been talking a lot about a promise and a lot about a hope and about how those two things are supposed to keep us on task as believers to be an encouragement to us. And maybe that idea is still a little bit nebulous to you. I totally understand if that's the case. But this hope, this idea, is not unclear to the author of Hebrews. He's going to tell us in the very next verse what it is. Look at verse 19. Our hope is a person. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And I hope that as I was reading that, at least one idea is coming to your mind. This hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain. We've heard this idea before. This is an Old Testament theme. Remember the tabernacle? The most holy place was separated off by a curtain, a veil. Only once a year could the high priest go into that sectioned off part of the tabernacle or the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the presence of God resided over the cherubim. And that high priest would come into the most holy place behind the veil and he would sprinkle the blood of a bull and a goat on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. And that practice continued for a very long time. Until one day, the Lamb of God was killed and his blood was shed. And that veil that had so long separated man from God was torn from top to bottom, illustrating that no longer is access to God just possible for one special person, everyone can have access to God through the person of Jesus Christ. 
And verse 20 confirms who we already knew this to be. I just said it. It's Jesus. Look at verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has access behind the curtain into the very presence of God. He has gone ahead of us through his death and his high priestly work and paved the way for us to be reconciled to God. Through the blood of Jesus, our sins have been atoned for. We have been forgiven. And now the pieces of this chapter are starting to fall into place. Because it's starting to become clear to us that whether this promise was the promise made to Abraham or another promise altogether, it doesn't really matter because both of them anticipate the coming of Jesus and this hope and this promise that should motivate believers to persevere even through the trials and the hardships of life is the shed blood of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. The access that we have to God. It's interesting that other passages of Scripture link this hope and this promise. Paul does this twice, once in Timothy, once in Titus. I've included the one from Titus just so we can see it. He introduces, like he does most books, with his name, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Notice the the similarities between this passage and the one we're in today. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This reality excited Paul. He couldn't even get two verses into a book to someone before he's talking about this promise and this hope and God never lying and it being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. This promise, he says, that was present before the ages began. God had been preparing for this for a long time. And I want you to look back at verse 19 and notice the effect that the knowledge of what Jesus has done for us should produce within us. Look at verse 19 again. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is the only place in scripture that the word anchor is used to talk about Christ. And it's pretty awesome. A lot of us probably don't think about anchors too often unless you're maybe a deep sea fisherman or travel on boats a whole lot, but I want you to remember or think back to the last time that you were at the beach, particularly if it's a a rough day out on the ocean. And I want you to think about how there is this just mass of water that stretches as far as the eye can see And who can contain that thing? It is an animal. I I remember, you know, I I grew up going to the West Coast and my grandpa saying, never turn your back on the ocean. It's dangerous. You can see it crashing against the rocks, throwing spray, moving even logs that you couldn't even put your arms around, moving them like it's a toy. 
I can't imagine anything more terrifying than being in a little boat on the ocean in the, you know, basically at its whim, being pushed off course or up against rocks and being unable to do anything about it. But if you have an anchor, you're grounded to the immovable ocean floor. And yeah, the waves still exist. Yeah, you're still going to go up and down a little bit, but you aren't going anywhere. That's what an anchor does. Remember these believers in Hebrews have gone through some really hard times. In keeping with the anchor imagery, we might say that they have been tossed about by the rough waves of life. And the comfort given to them is not that their problems would go away. The problems still exist. Life is hard. We know that. But the author of Hebrews says that's okay. The comfort for your soul is not your problems going away. The anchor of your soul does not hinge on present circumstances. They are anchored to truths that are significantly greater. That is that their sins have been forgiven, that they have peace with God. The anchor of their soul is Christ. And no matter how bad their circumstances get, one promise one truth remains unchanged. They're Christ's. Their future is secure. And now we're coming full circle to really the theme of this message, answering the question, how is it possible that Jesus is enough for us? How is it that Jesus is the remedy for when we feel beaten down by life on these stormy seas, so to speak. And if I could just summarize briefly for you, if you truly know Christ, your greatest need has been met. You were on a trajectory to hell, separation from God, your sins had piled up against you, condemning you, and you were forgiven because of the work of Christ. What more could you possibly need? What could be greater than that? And this isn't just a half-hearted, yeah, I, I think those things are true. This is a promise of God's who cannot lie. It is sure. Whereas unbelievers go to bed at night overwhelmed, by guilt that plagues them, wondering what is going to happen to them if they die that night, trying so hard to make sure their good works outweigh their bad. If you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about those things. It's already been taken care of. That should provide a great comfort to you. Jesus has accomplished what you could never do on your own. I think just this alone from Hebrews 6 is awesome, but Scripture isn't done listing the benefits of being in Christ. Here's another one for you. He's the anchor of our soul from Romans chapter 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Christ. Now, this idea of being a child or an heir is not just a nice word picture. It's not like Scripture also calls us a sheep. It also calls us 
uh, a branch connected to the vine. No, when it says here in Romans chapter 8 that if we are in Christ, that we are children of God, then that is exactly what it means. We're also heirs with Christ. Let me just read what one source I read said about this. He said, what belongs to Jesus will belong to us. Christ gives us his glory, his riches, and all things. This is more than just being allowed into heaven. We share in the inheritance of Christ. I've listed two future promises of being Christ. How about a present one? Again, from Romans chapter 8, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we have this promise that God loves us right now, if you are in Christ. And though you may experience some of the things that are listed here and in the verses prior to that, things that certainly seem hard and challenging and unpleasant, it should never make us think, God doesn't love me. That could not be further from the truth. Jesus says that our earthly fathers know how to give us good gifts. How much more our heavenly father, will he not take care of us? How about another just benefit of being in Christ? From 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we could go to a lot of places for this one, but this one in particular stood out to me. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to to life. What this verse is teaching us is that our life has meaning and purpose today. We are on this earth to be the aroma of Christ to people around us. We see a lot of unsaved people living for a lot of things that are ultimately frivolous and empty, and scripture says if you know Christ, your life has eternal significance. You can do things that have an impact in eternity. Jesus calls it laying up treasure in heaven, There's literally nothing more valuable we can be doing. And so a large part of knowing what it means that Jesus is enough, even in present trials, is just understanding. Our future is secure. We're loved by God. Our lives today have meaning and purpose and significance. And if we begin to fall into that trap and think that there is anything else in the world that could come close to providing for us what we already have in Christ, then I can't help but wonder if this betrays that we think too much of the world and too little of Jesus. You can try another anchor and you'll conclude, I'm still getting tossed around there's still no peace for my soul. Or you can remember what Jesus has done for you. That's a large part of the Christian life. It's just remembering. Uh, We're very prone to forgetfulness. And the scriptures here are just reminding us, remember, 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 Jesus has met your greatest need. Perhaps you need to remember like Abraham, God has taken care of the details of my past. I trust him for my future. I've seen him work. I've seen him do the impossible. I know God can continue to deliver me from my present circumstances. And as we close, let me just make one final observation here. 
I listed off some examples this morning of things that are perhaps trials for us. Maybe it's a broken home, tight finances, uh, discouragement, health. And you're thinking to yourself, how is Jesus enough? I'm going to wake up tomorrow and these things are still going to exist in my life. My problems are still going to be right there. I hope you know that following Jesus doesn't mean our problems go away. Um, Unsaved people and saved people alike all have problems. We all have difficult things that we must navigate, that we would rather not wish upon our own lives. We wish that it were easy, but that's that's not the case. We all feel that inner tension to try and cope with these stresses by working harder, by doing all these experiences, enjoying life, placing our hope and our identity in various things. But I trust that after the teaching this morning, the point is very clear to you. Why would you turn anywhere else but to the one who shed his blood for your soul? Look to Christ in the midst of the anxieties of life. Turn to the Father. Remind, let me remind you of what invitation the Father offers to us. He says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. There is one who cares for you. Go to him. As Hebrews reminded us this morning, when our lives are chaotic, when it seems out of control, when we're being tossed back and forth by the stormy seas of life, and you're tempted to look elsewhere, cling to the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this reminder this morning that Christ is enough, that you have met our greatest need in him. For those of us who were once far off, you have brought us near by the blood of Christ. And so as we try to navigate these difficult circumstances and the things that weigh heavy on our hearts and our minds, let us take comfort in the fact our sins are forgiven. We could die and have hope of eternal life because of Jesus. Help us to trust you then for the little things, to work them out, knowing that you have anchored us to this immovable truth of our position and purpose in life. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.